God calls us to worship from Psalm 50, beginning in verse 1. The mighty one God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my consecrated ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Let's sing Psalm 79a. Our scripture reading is from Haggai chapter 2. The minor prophet Haggai between Zephaniah and Zechariah in the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 9. On the twenty-first day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while will I once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Almighty. Bo, can you come lead us in prayer? Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man into destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in Your sight are like yesterday when it has passed like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up in the morning. It flourishes and grows up in the evening. It is cut down and withered. Let your beauty, Heavenly Father, be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us and establish the work of our hands. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Take time to confess our sins before you. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, for forgetting to do the things that we should have done and for doing those things which we should not have. Sins of commission and omission, Heavenly Father. We give you thanks and praise for your forgiveness. Tell us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear Heavenly Father, we lift up those that are ailing this morning. We think of little Emily, a broken collarbone. Uh, ask that you would be with her, comfort her. We give you thanks and praise for Grandma Snyder and recovering and ask that you would strengthen her, Heavenly Father. Think of Andre's dad and 
just having the uh, removal of his of his top teeth and what pain he must be in, Heavenly Father. Well, as we continue in Daniel chapter 11, we should remember that the key to understanding Daniel's prophecies is the book of Daniel itself. That's the nature of apocalyptic type of books like Daniel that we find in the Bible. These types of books build on themselves. Apocalyptic literature builds on itself, taking new looks at details that are introduced in previous sections. And so as we get here toward the end of the book of Daniel, we have the entire previous book of Daniel to draw from and we can see how Daniel is repeating things in new ways and expanding on things that he introduced in the chapters ahead. We have seen, for example, how Nebuchadnezzar's dream of four kingdoms in Daniel 2 sets the outline of what happens through the rest of Daniel. In true apocalyptic form, the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 correspond to the four kingdoms that were introduced in Daniel 2. And so we have this this sequence going over and over, repeating and getting bigger as we get through the book of Daniel. Babylon, which was represented by the gold of the image in Daniel 2, is also associated with the lion in Daniel 7. And then we have Persia, silver, becomes the bear in chapter 7. Greece, which is the bronze portion of the statue, becomes the goat. And Rome becomes the iron. The iron mixed with clay becomes a terrible, fierce beast that is really man-like. If you go back and you read Daniel chapter 7, this, this fearsome beast tramples everything underfoot, which gives us the image of a man because remember from the creation account, everything was placed under the feet of man. So we have this progression in the, in the book of Daniel from lion, bear, goat, and man. Do you see the order to that? Lion would be something extremely wild. Bear and then goat is a domesticated animal. And then you have Rome, which is really kind of a manifestation of man, this, this man-like kingdom, which was very fearsome in the case. So we have this development in Daniel in the four kingdoms toward this sort of new world, this new domestication that God is going to do through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we saw in Daniel 2 and 7 that the clay that was mixed with iron represented the Jews that did not mix well with Rome. And we looked at how the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 came up during the time of the fourth beast. And that sets an important context because we're going to get back to that here as we cycle through chapter 11 toward the end. Because we find that in verse verse 11 of chapter 7, this little horn speaks boastfully. Daniel says in Daniel 7.11, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into blazing fire. So we're using beast here as representative representative of men, but this little horn speaks boastfully. And Daniel 8 continues this same theme. And by the way, there's that change in in language from Daniel 7 to Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel 8 is now in Hebrew. And it says much the same thing with this vision of the new creation, the vision of the evening and the morning 2300. There again we see a stern-faced king who rises in the late, the latter part of the Greek king's rule who will become strong and verse 24 of chapter 8 says he will become very strong but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. That's another context for where we're going at the end of chapter 11 
in Daniel. That's really the beginning, the introduction of this boastful, very strong ruler who received his authority from someone else. We're going to get to that in Daniel chapter 11, a fuller explanation. And of course, when Daniel saw the vision of Daniel 8, which clearly involved his own people and the apostasy at the end of these 70 weeks, the Jews, he, he lay ill for many days because he was distraught at what he saw in his vision. And then from there on Daniel 9, introduces the prayer of Daniel at the end of the 70 years captivity, Babylonian captivity, which sets the con- immediate context for the 70 weeks prophecy at the end of Daniel 9. And I only say all this to highlight how Daniel keeps building on, on concepts and imagery and details that he's introduced already. And then we get to Daniel 10, 11, and 12, which is that last section, the 10th literary section of Daniel, which is a detailed prophecy of what will take place during the 70 weeks determined for the filling up the measure of the sin of God's people, the coming of the Messiah, and the final judgment at the end of the Old Covenant world in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So you should understand that everything in Daniel is related to everything else in Daniel. The book builds on itself, constantly adding more detail to things previously introduced. So if you look for interpretations of Daniel that are outside of the book, you're going to miss what Daniel's saying. And that's a real big problem with Christians today because they don't really understand what Daniel's talking about. So they go and look for interpretations just out of their own history, out of their own understanding, and they completely misinterpret what Daniel is really talking about. Now, last time we looked at the prophetic history of the third kingdom, that was the bronze kingdom of Greece, specifically what took place after the untimely death of Alexander, which, remember, was predicted in places like Daniel 8.8 and Daniel 11.4. That predicted about this Greek king that was going to rise to great power, but yet be cut off immediately and not leave his kingdom to any heirs. That's Alexander. That's what happened to Alexander. He died young and his kingdom was divided among his generals. Now, Daniel 7, 6, and this is, this is important context for what we're going to be looking at today. Daniel 7, 6 says, let me read this. After that, I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. The leopard, of course, was Greece, but the four heads tells us that there's going to be four prominent rulers in Greece that are going to span this time period for that the authority of the kingdom was given over to Greece. And so now we should understand at the end of Daniel chapter 11, based on what I presented last time, that the priority of the prophecy is now coming to its completion because in Daniel 11 we looked at four Greek rulers, starting with Alexander. And you have to remember when you look at Daniel chapter 11 that all this stuff that's going on here revolves around the priority of the promised land. It's all about what kings and what rulers have authority over the Jews, over the promised land, over the beautiful land. And we saw how these four Greek kings succeeded each other. Alexander the Great was the first. He was the first one who defeated Xerxes of Persia and therefore became lord of the promised land. Next was the king of the south, or Egypt, which we saw corresponded to the Ptolemaic rule of Greek Egypt. The south gained control of Palestine, but one of its generals became stronger still than even of the south. And we see that in 11, Daniel chapter 11, verse 5. 
The king of the south will become strong. That would be the the Ptolemies after Alexander. But one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. That commander was actually Seleucus, one of the generals uh, of the, of, uh, under Ptolemy I. And they, he actually began the Seleucid rule, which took over nor- the north of Palestine, would be Greek Syria in the north. And of course, as, as, you, as we saw last time, this passage moves from Egypt in the south to Syria, Greek Syria in the north. And that came to fulfillment when King Antiochus the Great conquered Egypt and then also became the liberator of, the, of Palestine and of the Jews where we have this echo going on from, from Hebrew history where the, prom, the promised land and the people are delivered again from Egypt. We saw that when the north defeated the king of the south in the middle part of chapter 11. So that would be number three. That's the third king. Antiochus the Great is the third king. So we have Alexander the Great. We have the Ptolemies. And then we have Antiochus the Great. And then we move it from Antiochus the Great to his son, Antiochus Epiphanes, which the second half or the, the second third of Daniel 11 is dealing with, with Antiochus Epiphanes. And we saw how all that took place. Antiochus the Great, after he delivered the Jews from Egypt, which was, of course, that echo from ancient Hebrew history about the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, he went on to make war against a developing Rome and was defeated by the Roman general Scipio when he tried to ally himself with Hannibal. We covered that last time. Antiochus' son was captured and trained in Rome and Antiochus the Great became a vassal of Rome and he was required to send tribute to Rome. And so he had to go out and make war just to raise the money that he owed to Rome and his son was actually raised in Roman ways. And we see this and what we see going on here from that, from that point on is Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of Antiochus the Great, became ruler of the Promised Land and, the, and therefore we get into the, the, the whole prophecy of his reign and the Maccabean Revolt, which we covered last time. And we see another pattern here that actually mimics what happened earlier in Daniel. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He had a, he had a liberating effect on God's true people because he judged the apostates in Jerusalem. And yet King Nebuchadnezzar had a son who became apostate, right? Remember Belshazzar? He was, in essence, the son of Nebuchadnezzar as succession, not necessarily by biology, but as successor. And we find out that Belshazzar was an apostate and he had forsaken the ways of his father. And when Antiochus the Great had liberated the Jews from rule of Egypt. Remember, he was so thankful for the Jews for supporting him in his campaign against Egypt and against the Ptolemies that he gave a three-year tax holiday to the Jews that they did not have to send any more taxes for three years. He decreed that the order in the Jerusalem and the, and, the, and the priestly system be maintained with integrity according to the law of Moses and he exempted the Levites from ever paying taxes to his kingdom again. And so he liberated the Jews and and redeemed them from bondage of Egypt. And yet his son, Antiochus Epiphanes, changed all of that. And we saw how that took place when Antiochus Epiphanes got to the point where he wanted to attack Egypt. Rome sent their ships because Egypt was allied with Rome and told Antiochus Epiphanes that that Egypt is off limits. And if you attack Egypt, 
you will be attacking Rome. And that was, of course, a humiliating situation for Antiochus Epiphanes. He came back to the Promised Land and he decreed that from that point on, the Holy Land was going to be turned into a Greek enclave. It was going to be turned into a Greek culture. He was going to build fortresses there, which would be fortresses fortresses against Egypt and against Rome and he brought in all of the Greek culture and forced the Greek culture on top of the Jews. We talked about the details of that last time where the gymnasium came into Jerusalem with all the homosexual activity that the Greek gymnasium brought. We talked about the Greek games, how the Olympic games were brought into Jerusalem and the Jews began participating because the priests had bought their power from Antiochus Epiphanes, the apostate priests had bought their power from Antiochus Epiphanes that they brought the Olympic Games into Jerusalem and Judea. We saw what happened with that particular example of the apostate priest Jason and what they did. Of course, remember I had mentioned that Jews running around in the nude is a big problem. The Olympic Games were actually practiced in the, in the nude. Everybody understands that, correct? And so you have all these circumcised guys running around in the Greek Games and they were embarrassed. And so they actually sewed foreskins on themselves so they would look like Greeks to participate in the games. That's how far this particular period of time with Antiochus Epiphanes, how far, how bad it had gotten. God's people were even ashamed of the sign of the covenant and when they were participating in all these Greek festivals and the Greek uh, Hellenic invasion into Judea and Jerusalem. And of course, from Antiochus Epiphanes' view, this was just political. This was just a political move to strengthen his political power to stand against Egypt and against Rome. But what had happened was the Holy Covenant had been broken and the priests had apostatized and and by agreeing to uh, prostitute themselves to Antiochus Epiphanes for power, they brought down the holy people. And of course that initiated the Maccabean Revolt which we saw is talked about in verse 31 and 32. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes did by slaughtering the high priest and selling the office of the high priest to the highest bidder. He ended the daily sacrifice in the temple. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And there's a translation problem with that because it's actually the abominable desolation. It's not necessarily something that causes desolation. It's the abominable desolation, which was the apostasy of the priests. If you look at the Old Testament, the only people that can apostatize and create the abomination are the priests. They're the ones that can commit abominations. And so what you have here is another thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did, along with these other things, was he set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. Imagine that. In God's temple, an altar to the Greek high god, Zeus, right in the middle of the temple. And that was, of course, the abom- that was, of course all connected to this great abomination, this abominable desolation of God's people, the apostasy of the priests, and the ending of the, of the sacrifice. And then we saw in verse 32 that we're talking about the Maccabean Revolt. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. Those are the apostate priests that ally themselves to Antiochus Epiphanes. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. We saw this as the Maccabean revolt when she had the Hasidim, covenant loyalty group, stood up and opposed 
Antiochus Epiphanes and, and opposed the false high priest Jason and others. And these are the beginning of the Pharisees that we see in the New Testament. This is the beginning of the Pharisees. There were others also who opposed him. This is the beginning of the Essenes who withdrew from Judea and Jerusalem and, and established communities around the countryside where they could continue to worship God faithfully apart from the corrupt, wicked priesthood that had become. Verse 33, Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And we saw what Antiochus Epiphanes, along with the help of the priests, did. They slaughtered those who opposed their policy. In one case, they had 800 of these Hesedim put up on crosses and sacrificed on crosses. And then while they were on their crosses dying, they brought their families in and slaughtered their families right in front of the, right in front of the, uh, the men who were dying on the cross. Some of these wise men will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So we get to another mention of the terminus, the end. Speaking of the 70 weeks, it will still come at the appointed time. And now we continue in our text today, verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortress with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry, a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of the Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Since we have a mention of the terminus or the end in verse 35, I believe that we've got a shift here in verse 36 to a new king. The description here applies specifically to King Herod, but it also probably applies as well to the Roman Caesars who are always in the background of Herodian family rule over the promised land. Remember how the, the Maccabean revolt ended. After the Maccabean revolt was successful in reinstituting sacrifices and successful in putting back some kind of semblance of Jewish order in Judea, there were these warring factions in Judea and the, the, the war, this sort of civil strife came to an end once the, one of these factions made an alliance with Rome and Rome came and enforced order in Judea. And that, of course, makes a transition. 
because now we don't have Greek rule over Judea anymore. Because of this alliance with Rome, we now have the beginning of the fourth kingdom, which Daniel prophesied in Daniel 2, the kingdom of iron and clay. And so what we have here is this new king, King Herod, actually would have been, first of all, uh, Herod's father, Antipater I. But specifically, this is dealing mostly with Herod the Great. He is the specific king of this prophecy. Herod was a ruthless ruler who even had some of his own sons killed when he suspected plots against him. And this, of course, is the same Herod the Great who also tried to have Jesus killed when he heard rumors from the east. So he was obsessed with the consolidation of power. His faith was in absolute power, and that's why he engaged in these huge building projects. Actually, Herod is best known to history by what he was able to build. He had these huge public works projects, things that, that boggle our mind. Uh, he, he boasted in what he was able to accomplish as far as building projects. Some of these building projects, projects took 20, 25, 30 years to complete. And by the way, this boasting identifies him as the same little horn of Daniel 7 that arose during the time of the fourth kingdom. So this, there's this connection here to Daniel chapter 7 and the little horn and the boasting, proudful speech of the little horn who had speech and eyes like a man, which we saw had a Jewish connection. But Herod built great fortresses at Masada. He built a great fortress at Jerusalem, Fortress Antonia, and many others. He built entirely new cities from the ground up. This is what Herod the Great is known for in history. Caesarea, for example, the city that comes to play in Acts. We read about Philip and Peter staying at Caesarea. Well, that's, that city was built from the ground up by Herod the Great. And he built temples in Athens and Sparta, but he was most famous for his lavish reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And I believe Herod's work actually fulfills Haggai chapter 2, where we read as our scripture reading this morning, about the, the glory of that present house becoming greater than the glory of Solomon's house before it. Herod's building project did that. He spent many, many years working on the temple and lavishing all kinds of treasures on the temple to make a monument for his own name. That's what he wanted. He wanted to make this a, a wonder of the world so that he would always be remembered by what he built with this new temple, this reconstructed temple in Jerusalem. And of course, he also did other things too, kind of interesting. He would speak with religious speech to the Jews, but he would consolidate power like a Roman. And we'll see how that works. In fact, when he got done with the temple, he put a Roman eagle on top of it. So if you can imagine that kind of a politician he would speak very, very smooth words to the Jews and do things that they loved. They were proud of their temple. You get that very clearly from the New Testament. When the disciples were asking Jesus this question, what about all these magnificent buildings? What about all this beautiful stuff? That's Herod's stuff. In fact, they were so encaptured in, 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 in by it that they had totally ignored what Daniel had prophesied about the coming end in which the sanctuary in the city would be destroyed. They didn't even really realize that that was possible, that these beautiful buildings that were the pride of Israel were going to be destroyed. And so Herod would consolidate his power by these building projects. He would strengthen his hand in Jerusalem because he made God's temple a wonder of the ancient world. 
Verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Daniel takes us back to the 70 weeks. He's going to be successful till the end of the 70 weeks. The Herodian family rule continued in Judea until AD 70. And so this prophecy was fulfilled. And by the way, Paul picks up this language about this wrath in 1 Thessalonians 2.16. If you go there, you'll see that Paul is saying something very important in 1 Thessalonians 2. Speaking of the Jews and the rulers of Judea, verse 15, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God, displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. Paul's talking about the fulfillment of what Daniel was saying with the, full, the filling up the measure of the sins. They always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. That's the time, if you notice in verse 36, he will be successful until a time of wrath is completed. And so what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 2 is that Daniel 11.36 is being fulfilled in his day with the Jews. Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin. Those were the Jewish priests. He was tried by Herod, who was the Jewish governor of Judea. And he was tried by Pilate, the Roman governor. And we see the same threefold trial with, the, with Paul after that because Paul was also tried by the Sanhedrin. Paul was also trialed by King Herod Agrippa II, one of the successors of King Herod. And then he was also stood before Caesar. So we have the same threefold trial happening with Paul as we see happening with Jesus. Continuing in verse 37. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. How did God distribute the land? This is a, there's a contrast going here. And we need to read this in terms of Israel's history. God distributed the land as an inheritance for free. And we see in the, in the time of Exodus, God set up his rulers over the land. And in the judges, he's raised up judges to, to defend his, his people. Well, now we have this, this sort of opposite with Herod. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. And so he's taking God's prerogative here. And we see that with a political connivance of Herod the Great. Also notice he says in verse 39, he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. The foreign god would be Rome and the Caesars. He did everything he did through the power and alliance of Rome. But this describes Herod the Great to a T. Herod was born as an Edomite. That's a descendant of Esau. So he does come directly from Isaac. But Herod's family embraced Judaism, including circumcision, which made him a Jew, according to Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8. And there's this confusion about Herod. Some people think of Herod as a Gentile ruler, but Herod is actually a Jew. 
His family was a circumcised Edomite family. And the law says in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that circumcised Edomites become part of the assembly of God in the third generation. And of course, he embraced the, the Jewish religion. That's why he was so interested in sort of building up the temple. He saw himself as a true, faithful Jew. And, but by worshiping absolute power and the God of fortresses, Herod showed no regard for the faith of his fathers. Abraham and Isaac did not do such things. Israel was not to place their trust in fortresses or horses or chariots. Herod's God was a God of fortresses and he used a cloak of piety and political intrigue to exalt himself against God. And so he would speak like a Jew, but he would rule like a Gentile. That's really how, that really sums up Herod the Great very well. He spoke like a true Jew, faithful in all things, but he ruled like a pagan Gentile. Note also in verse 37 that Herod showed no regard for the one desired by women. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, or for the one desired by women. What do you think Daniel's talking about? Herod the Great, not showing any regard for the one desired by women. Sort of interesting, There's a, I was reading a couple commentaries one of them suggested that this is somehow reference to homosexuality or something. This king was going to be a homosexual, which is pretty bizarre. If you read any of the Protestant commentaries about the time of the Reformation, they actually interpret this as a reference to the celibate priesthood because during the Reformation, the Pope was the Antichrist and so everything dealing with this particular you know, ungodly king has to deal with the Roman Catholic Church. And so they saw celibate priesthood. I mean, that's, of course, ripping this right out of context, right out of the context of Daniel, but that's what they saw. He will have show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women. Well, if we read this in the context of Daniel, who knew the Old Testament well, we should understand who he's talking about here. I read from Haggai 2, where we are told that the desire, same word here in Hebrew, of nations was the Messiah. And if we understand this all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 will understand exactly who he's talking about. Who's Daniel talking about? He's talking about the Messiah that was first promised to Eve. Because Eve was promised a Messiah, a seed, who would crush the head of the serpent. And that would be what she looked forward to in fulfillment of that promise. So this is really going back to the garden. He will show, speaking of Herod the Great, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women. That would be the Messiah. And we see that happening very clearly in the New Testament, right at the beginning of the New Testament. The wise men came from the east asking, where is the one born king of the Jews? And they troubled Jerusalem and Herod altogether because Herod had been declared king of the Jews. That's another interesting thing about his history. The Roman Senate in A.D. 39 declared Herod the Great king of the Jews. That's the context here. And now you have these wise men coming from the east saying, we've seen his star. We know he's been born. Where is the one born king of the Jews that we may worship him? Herod heard this and what did he do? Herod was a Jew, remember? He knew about Daniel's prophecies. He knew about the prophecies of of the Messiah to come. He knew that the Messiah was, was scheduled to appear before long. Did he show any regard for the one desired by women? No, Herod the Great tried to have Jesus killed as an infant. 
And there's another one of these very powerful, powerful echoes from e- Hebrew history here because not only is Herod like Pharaoh who tried to kill the Hebrew male children and the baby, baby Moses in the time of the Egyptian captivity, Herod is also like the first king of the Jews, Saul. Remember the first king of the Jews? Saul tried to kill David. That's right. And actually there's some more connections here as well because Saul also at one time tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, because of his friendship with David. And we see, in, in, according to history, that um, Herod himself killed some of his own sons because of rumors about plots against him. The remarkable thing about the history is that the only ruling authorities in the New Testament called kings were the Herods. And that throws a whole new significance to that sign that Pilate wrote above Jesus Christ's cross. And you think about the echo of Hebrew history. What did Pilate write on, the, on top of the cross? Jesus, King of the Jews. And when he wrote that sign, as a Roman governor of Judea, he announced that the Jews had a new king. Saul was being replaced with a true greater son of David. And so all, the, all of this history is just sort of, sort of building in Daniel's prophecy and he's, he's making prophetic statements about what took place in the early part of the New Testament. Verses 40 through 43. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. See, there's a mistranslation there. It's actually the king of the south will engage with him in a battle. These are the, this, is, this is the Egypt, the Greek Egypt. And the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. The king of the north at this point was Rome because Rome had put Greek Syria underneath the reign of the Senate, underneath the rule of the Senate. And of course we know that Rome had a great navy as well, as well as chariots and cavalry, etc. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. This is actually a Caesar who does this. But notice at the beginning that the, that the king of the south and Herod the Great are in alliance. And so actually, Herod is presented here as against Rome. And actually, that took place. This refers to the Actian War of 31 BC. Initially, Herod allied himself with Mark Antony and Cleopatra against the Roman general Octavian who became Caesar Augustus. You probably know him better as Caesar Augustus, but he wasn't Caesar at that time. Herod feared Rome and wanted more power for himself and Anthony and Cleopatra wanted Rome to be a more loose confederation, a more decentralized empire and Herod saw an opportunity for him to gain power. And so he threw his support toward Anthony and Cleopatra. When they took their armies and they attacked Octavian at Athens, Anthony and Cleopatra were lovers. Cleopatra, of course, was the famous woman ruler of Egypt. But they attacked Octavian at Athens and Herod initially gave them support to that campaign. That campaign. He sent supplies. He made an alliance with them. However, the Roman Senate immediately declared war on Cleopatra and sent Octavian, 
and the legions to battle along with the navy. Octavian, that's Caesar Augustus, conquered Egypt, but not Edom, Moab, or the Ammonites. And so we have a perfect fulfillment of this in the Actian War of 31 BC. So the Roman armies came into the land like an overwhelming flood and they began defeating all of those who stood against him. And by the way, the Hebrew word for storms here, he will also invade the beautiful land. He will, uh, I'm sorry, verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him. The Hebrew word for storm is a homonym for Greek, for a, uh, for a young goat. Remember the young goat image back with Alexander presented as this Alexander goat that's going to bash the ram in Daniel chapter 8 defeating Xerxes and taking over the entire known world. So we have this goat imagery now applied to Octavian and Herod in combination. Remember the fourth kingdom is iron and clay mixed. And so we should understand here that this is now we're now working within the fourth kingdom of Rome. When Herod saw the overwhelming response of the Roman Senate Activated by the general Octavian, he switched sides to support the clear winner, Caesar Augustus. Mark Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide, and the Roman Empire, as we know it, was firmly established at that point in time. And of course, Herod, because he switched sides and gave his support to Rome in Judea, and specifically to Octavian, Caesar Augustus, his support guaranteed his strong rule over Judea. And this was, was about 27 years before the birth of Christ. Verse 44. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Reports from the east and the north. And this is actually a chiastic return to what we saw earlier. He heard rumors from Rome about his sons plotting to overthrow him. He had them killed. The wise men came from the east to worship the king of the Jews. We can see that in Matthew chapter 2 and how this is really a fulfillment of what's being spoken of in Daniel chapter 11. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. See? He heard reports from the east and he is troubled. Exact fulfillment of Daniel chapter 11. And all Jerusalem with him. And then we know, of course, what happened in the story. Herodian rule lashed out at Jesus. Herod's successor, Herod the Tetrarch, lashed out against John the Baptist. We could read about this. This is the fulfillment of the annihilation of many, the attack on God's people. John the Baptist was thrown into prison for preaching that it was not lawful for Herod to have his brother's wife. And then, if you remember, at the request of his stepdaughter who danced for him, Herod had John the Baptist beheaded and his head served up on a silver platter. And all the Christians who were persecuted in the New Testament church, all the Christians were persecuted under the rule of Herod, of one of the Herods and his successors. So the fulfillment of this prophecy is that he would be successful for the period of time all the way to the end of 70 weeks and that's exactly what we see come true in, in history. So Daniel's prophecy has now set the scene in Rome and Judea for the coming of Michael, the Prince of the Covenant. We're going to get to that next 
uh, chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. This is the coming of Messiah. From here, the prophecy talks about the kingdom of Michael. And remember how this is going to be the kingdom given over to the Gentiles. At the beginning of Daniel, we saw Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians take over the kingdom. And we saw it go from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. But it was prophesied that once that fourth kingdom came, a rock not cut out of from hands is going to strike that statue and fill the whole earth. And then the kingdom would be given over to the saints. And so now we're going to be, be reading chapter 12 is going to be about the kingdom of Michael. The scene is set for the Messiah to come and to do his work so that the saints can once again forever and ever possess the kingdom. So next we will look at the kingdom of Michael. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in our heritage and our history. We thank you for your protection and uh, perseverance with your people, your hand of protection for those who are faithful. We also see your remarkable judgments in in our history on those who break faith with you, who break the eternal covenant. Lord, we pray that you teach us lessons about this, about the importance of covenant faithfulness, the importance of understanding um, these details so we may not be thrown about by every wind of doctrine or every fad that comes along. Lord, we pray that you bless us as we gather and continue to enjoy our fellowship, our friendships with one another. We pray that you be with us as we continue to teach our children that they might be productive tools in your kingdom. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.